OTB GAA. You know, Offaly had won by a last minute goal. So my inspirational speech actually backfired on me. Subscribe to the OTB GAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Now you're welcome along, Sunday paper review. So I'll start you by going through the back pages. Manchester City, definitely a popular choice on the back pages. Sunday Times, beat that Arsenal is the headline. It's Riyad Mahrez celebrating City's third goal yesterday. They were amazing, really, against Southampton. Alongside that, Klopp says title race may already be finished, which I think has occurred to most of us, unfortunately, at this stage as well. Sunday Independent. Uh, it's a great photo, by the way. So it's Erling Haaland scoring and it's Bazunu who did make a couple of good saves in the midst of conceding four, uh, struggling to stop that one. Unstoppable is the headline. Haaland on the mark again. And then Klopp dismisses talk of a seven-year hitch, uh, which will come to inside a few pieces of Ed Klopp and seven years at Liverpool. Picture of Haaland again on the Observer front page. And the headline is him again, which kind of says it all really at this stage. Sun Sport. So, uh, well, this just all, this just, screams ticking boxes for all concerned Bex and Inter-Miami happy to give Ronaldo an offer so maybe he'll consider that in uh, January and then we have the Sunday people they also have that David Beckham Inter-Miami Ronaldo story so presumably something in it and then Sunday Mirror Wonder Hal it's Erling Haaland it's Man City 4-0 Mail on Sunday Klopp we won't win title now Klopp doesn't say definitively we won't win title but he does say it's unlikely at this stage and Mail on Sunday going with that as their lead and a picture of Erling Haaland yesterday as City go top after Haaland scores in 10th successive game Liverpool boss all but concedes and then Sunday World Klopp's call of duty and uh, again that interview that he gave to journalists on Friday in advance of today's game where he says things like it's important to be unpredictable again we need different systems says Jurgen Klopp very happy to say Sarah Donovan All-Ireland Camogie winner with Cork and a representative of Dublin as well as with us in studio as is Kieran Cunningham Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star you're both very welcome uh, good to have you in studio uh, Kieran. I know your Donegal links are strong we were just chatting Friday the Imros were on and I was uh, somewhat oblivious to the tragedy I did that thing of just saying well I'm putting my phone away for uh, much of the day and uh, it was only the next morning really I saw the full extent of it it is uh, unbelievably shocking you would know the area I presume uh, it's, yeah, it's like I'm from 60 miles away from Creaselop but I was thinking about this and one of the reasons I think it's really impacted hugely on people around the country to an extent greater than a lot of other tragedies and I think it's because everybody knows Creaselop in that there are a thousand Creaselops in the country and if when you look at those pictures, you know, that service station comes shop, like the amount of times you've gone into a place like that to get a coffee or use the toilet or, you know, not even getting diesel necessarily or, you know, getting a bite to eat. And in a small village um, where that's the only shop and it's a gathering point and at that time on a Friday, kids used to go into a Friday treat and, you know, the, you know, the father and five-year-old daughter, they were, they were lost they were in buying a cake for their mother, you know, and there's all those personal stories that comes out of it. Uh, you know, when you're saying everybody knows Chris Law, like the greatest Donegal writer in, in a strange twist is Brian Friel, who's actually from Tyrone. But he, his family were Donegal and he, was, he lived much of his life in Donegal. 
and all his plays were set, most of his plays were set in a place he called Ballybeg, you know, which was kind of microcosm of Ireland. And, uh, you know, Creaselaw was a typical Ballybeg, even though he'd based it on Glenties. And watching the news yesterday, you know, and the, the locals being interviewed, like there was a Gallagher and a Sweeney and a Doherty. And I would say every parish in Donegal is Gallagher's, Sweeney's and Doherty's. Liam McElhinney was interviewed, and Liam would have been involved in various Donegal County teams at different grades over the years. He's with the St Michael's Club. Ten years ago, Donegal won the All-Ireland, and his son Martin came on in midfield in the second half. And all, you know, you see, um, you see the way people have come together. Like the St Michael's Club, which would be the club of Christy Toy and Colin McFadden, as well as Mark McFa- uh, Martin McElhenney and now Michal Langan on the current team, you know, they're, you know, they've come together to help as much as they can. As of all the wider community, there's a little coffee shop there that is refusing to take payment for giving refreshments to the emergency services and to the journalists covering the story there. And it reminds me of, um, you know, there's a traditional value in Ireland, was called the Mehal, the, the Mehal, or the Mehal, depending on what the form of Irish you use. But it was a primitive form of communism that, you know, when there was, because it was more or less an agrarian society. And if you had a harvest day or a day for the haystack or whatever, all your neighbours would cut. Like, that's very labour intensive. So all your neighbours would come and help you that day and you would reciprocate and no money uh, passed hands. And that was the traditional Irish way. And like Donegal, I've seen a lot of praise for the Creaselock community and Donegal community for the way they responded but I think it's a human reaction. I think, you know, I think everybody, every community everywhere would react that way. And it goes to the core of what's human, you know, that you come together in the time of greatest loss. And the impact on people down the road is, is so hard to fathom, you know, particularly the younger people. Who, who, you know, because there was a lot of um, teenagers around and, and children around at the time. And, like, I remember as a kid... Um, a trawler went down where we where we from when I was seven, and six people were lost. And two years ago, the same spot, the same rocks. Another trawler went down, five people were lost. And the boats were called the Evelyn Marie and the Carriguna. And there's loads of things I don't remember as a kid, but I always remember those names. Like the, the tragedy, just leaves its mark on you, you know. And I feel for those people when the lights of the cameras turn on, people move away. They have to live with what happened there, and yeah. I hope they get plenty of help. Yeah, it's. Uh it's dreadful, really. It's hard to get your head around the, the suffering. There's no neat segue onto sports no. pages after that. So we'll just proceed very much on the basis uh, that much of what we're about to talk about pales, obviously, by some distance. Uh, the draw for Euro 2024 is ongoing. I appreciate this is the paper review, but this draw is uh, touched on in the papers. And it's quite interesting if you read in advance of the draw, Paul Rowan on page seven of the Sunday Times He's talking about really what Stephen Kenny would desperately want to avoid. He says from pot one, well, we definitely are sorry, from pot two, rather. Pot one is going to be difficult regardless. But certainly from pot two, we want to avoid France, England and Serbia. Well, we've got France. And then from pot four, Ireland being in pot three, the danger there comes in the shape of Greece or Turkey. Well, we've got Greece. So really, it's about as difficult as you could uh, anticipate. So it's France... Netherlands, Ireland, Greece and uh, just latterly I see Gibraltar uh, thrown into that group as well. So right away you look at that and you say, well, 
top two qualify, Ireland are not going to qualify. Uh, certainly that route, it's going to be uh, playoff again because, uh, I don't know, you need luck as a manager and there were definitely uh, other groups there which would not have been as scary. But France, Netherlands and the danger then from Greece behind. In some ways, Greece could be the trickier tie if you look take a hiding here or there against France, Netherlands. It could be forgiven potentially, but you don't want to finish behind Greece as well. That's when things get very sticky, but... Um, I don't know what do you say. You need you need to be a lucky general sometimes, Sarah. You seem very optimistic, Joe. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's that whole thinking fast, thinking slow. Whatever that Daniel Kinnaman book. So it's, it, at <coughs> a certain point, your instinctive reaction here could just be the right one. Oh no, we're screwed. I don't see why this shouldn't be just a challenge. You know, uh, mm. as with everything else, their ranking is their ranking. They were always going to be up against it. They could have had an easier draw, but. Everything they do from here on in will be bonus territory, I think, you know, and, and that's the way I would be looking at it. Uh, Kieran, you might disagree. I think it's, I'm excited by the draw. Like, I know it's very hard, but um, I just think, you know, the, a lot of fans will go, wow, we're playing France, we're playing Netherlands. And uh, even though it would be very hard to finish the top two, I think that would have been the case anyway. But I, I know I always thought the likeliest route is because of the convoluted system, with the Nations League, more than likely will have a playoff unless, you know, it's, uh, there's a, a few unlikely results down the road. But, uh, I, you know, I think people there will be an excitement out of France coming here, Netherlands coming here. There are also the advantage for fans as well. You can get direct flight to Paris, uh, presuming the game is at Paris. Uh, you can direct flights to Amsterdam. You can get direct flights to Greece. That is very attractive when, you know, the last few years when you've been going to Armenia or Kazakhstan has been very complicated and it's been, uh, you know, in football terms, it's obviously hugely challenging. But it was seven years ago, yesterday, St. Ireland beat Germany, you know, and it was Shane Long's goal. Yeah. And sometimes something, you know, Netherlands didn't qualify for the last World Cup. You know, th- th- there are teams that can... You can just get them on a certain day. Like it's unlikely you're going to finish top two. I agree, Greece will be tricky, but I think um, I can see positives in it. Like I, I just think the whole. I know there's a you know the the people are very vocal about Kenny and the project, and there's excitement around it. But I think to grab the attention of a wider public, you need you haven't had a big glamour team mm. play in Ireland since Germany, probably in Ireland. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have. Have you? No, you haven't. Uh, Portugal, glamour-ish. Yeah, Portugal to an extent. Was that behind closed doors, that one? Or were fans back then trying to remember? Do you not remember the girl running on getting the jersey? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who could forget <laughs> that magical moment yeah, in Irish yeah. football? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was full house. It was amazing atmosphere. Yeah. So some of the other groups, if you're interested, by the way, the what could have been uh, for Ireland, maybe. <laughs> we could have been in with Switzerland and Israel as the top two in the group. Would have made that tournament, no problem. We could have been in with... Croatia and Wales. We would have had to go at Wales, I think. Belgium, Austria. Top two, another group. Hungary, Serbia. I mean, we would have topped that group. Not quite, but, you know. <laughs> Hungary have been going really well at Serbia. Uh, uh, Denmark, Finland, top two in Group H. Group J, Portugal and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Mm. Italy and England are in the same group yeah. with Ukraine. And then Netherlands, France. Yeah, you got two, you got two of the toughest. Yeah. yeah, that's all I wanted us to acknowledge here, everyone. <laughs> but I still so, think there's an excitement about playing big teams. No, there, there is, of course. There's also excitement getting to a tournament, but, you know, fair enough. But you're about 64 teams qualifying now, don't they? Through yeah. various routes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I suppose the interesting thing, and we'll, we'll tease it out all through next year, is next year, 
from March to November, which is how long this group will take, that has been set up as the real referendum on Stephen Kenny. Yeah. And I appreciate you're saying, well, he'll get the playoff. But if that group goes appallingly badly, he may not get the playoff. Yeah, and there, yeah, and there's an important point as well to make in that the schedule is so important uh, of games. Like if you start off, say... Rotterdam, Paris. Yeah, and then say Athens, yeah. then Greece away. Yeah. So after three games, there's a fair chance you'll have zero points. You know, even... even oh, Mr. Even Positivity! <laughs> Welcome back to the room. No, but I mean, it depends on the run of games. Like, yeah, but sure. if you start off with Greece at home and Gibraltar... And then one of the big guns at home, then you could suddenly get a bit of momentum. Yeah. You know, you could get a draw against uh, France or Netherlands here and win the other two. So, suddenly, so it depends uh, so much on the run again. Harking back to previous qualification campaigns, sometimes getting those bigger teams early World Cup hangover. I mean, the World Cup will be, what, two months old effectively? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there can be good well, times. Well, let's go back to, if you go back to the qualification for 2002 World Cup, the yeah, first two games were Netherlands and Portugal away. Yeah. And uh, that, that kick-started at two, two decent draws, could, could have won, should have won Amsterdam. Yeah. Let's jump into the papers then. Well, I mean, look, that draw is in the papers. Obviously, they could only cover it in so much as they could. Uh, Jurgen Klopp's on all the front pages. He spoke at length to journalists on the uh, Friday, so quite a few. Jonathan Wilson, back page of the Observer, faltering Liverpool are at a crossroads and Klopp is hard-pressed to find answers. Tommy Conlon's writing about it in the Sunday Independent and... Jonathan Northcroft as well. So what is the general feeling on Klopp out there, Sarah, in these pieces? Tommy Conlon's piece has Midas lost his magic touch. Yeah. And honing in on this piece, I, I liked where Tommy went and he said, what if the heart of the matter is internal rather than external? That he simply cannot persuade his players any longer to play to their maximum game after game after game then they're facing a problem that goes to the core of their identity. And in management right now, and you're looking at that word intensity and where they went to last season and how far they had to push themselves and then ultimately came away with nothing. Hmm. Um, And the age of the profile of the team, um, Manchester City's glorious uh, run this season. But, you know, Klopp makes the point outside of the premiership there's still so many other things to fight for and I suppose the question is do his players think that those things matter and that's where I would see it and obviously we have the seven year itch he was seven years in his first uh, managerial position seven years in his second and this is the seventh year of his third and interestingly he says that anniversary crept up on me I didn't realise it so suggesting that he may go for an eighth or a ninth but does he have the energy to actually go at a, you know a rebuilding campaign again and interestingly he talks about taking a holiday after his second stint and he was going for a year and he was having this big you know time off period and he lasted four months yeah. and he ends up at Liverpool after four months so he said I was full of energy and I was mad to go again so maybe he doesn't have energy for Liverpool but he might have energy for another challenge mm. yeah, I'm not so sure about that Sarah because this was supposed to be his last season and then he he uh, and it'd be why he'd widely he talked about in various interviews that he wasn't going to change his mind, and he did last season. Then he signed a new contract, and that that indicated me he wanted to build a new team. And I think the most in, he's the most interesting manager in the Premier League now because of the this, the point he's at. You know, as mentioned in Jonathan Northcroft's piece, that uh, only Alex Ferguson and Wenger, to a lesser extent, were successful after being in a job that long in uh, in the Premier League era. And that he now is like I watched City yesterday, and you admire City, but I'm not. Uh, but it's 
there's a predictability to City that isn't there with Liverpool that wasn't actually there with Ferguson's United. Like, you know, when you talked about Fergie time, mm. and what Fergie time tells you is that a lot of games were in the balance up to the very end with that United. And there's a sense of jeopardy about Liverpool, even when they were doing well and, uh, you know, winning... Uh, Winning both the Champions League and the Premier League, there were so many games that they snatched at the end, or they, you know, they won, they won against the odds. Yeah. Uh, but now they are there. There are uh, there's no single reason why they're they're struggling now. I think it just a lot of things have come together for a perfect storm. And you know, there's an interesting line here with Jonathan Norcroft that against Brighton. Brighton became the seventh non-big six six side in eight league games to take the lead against them. And, the, you know, there's teething problems and, tr- and transitioning to a new attack, ageing of key players. Uh, you know, Klopp arranged, uh, addressed this thing about them being predictable. But they were always predictable. People knew how they were able to play, how Liverpool were going to play, but they weren't able to counteract. But it, that but was not, Mane, wasn't it? Yeah, like, well, not, well, not just Mane, but I think just because of ageing legs and, you know, there's ge- a general weariness, they're not doing what they used to do to the same extent, so they're not able to counteract. Uh, no, Manny was very, very, definitely very important, and Nunes has a lot to prove. But um, there's a very interesting thing, uh, a book he mentions called uh, Red Men Reborn by a guy called John Williams, which is a, basically a social history of Liverpool and making the comparisons with the Bill Shankly era. And uh, people forget, as, as pointed out here, Shankly went from 66 after winning the league to 73 for his next trophy. And he was seven years without a trophy then. That wouldn't be allowed to happen now. You know, you'd be out the door. But uh, what Williams in that book points out is there's similarities with Shankly in that he gets emotionally connected with people. So he doesn't want to let players go, which means transition is harder. Like somebody like James Milner shouldn't be playing as, mo- as often as no, he is now. You know, he shouldn't not. still be at a top club. And you look at your... They've competed so consistently with City. Like, City let Milner go the guts of a decade ago in a free transfer. Like, he wouldn't be anywhere near a City squad. But Liverpool still depend on him, you know, and that's, that's the big difference. And Liverpool, in a way, have kept City honest the last few years. And without Liverpool, and I can't see Liverpool being a force in the Premier League definitely this season, it's going to be a per, uh, no procession. And I, I, I would think Arsenal will beat them today. The interesting thing about Nunes, and you're, you're saying, you know, he possibly could fill that Mane void they're suggesting that his current form is a blip and the article here says his career record is one goal from every six shots a similar rate to Mohamed Asala, Mane and Harry Kane but at the minute I think it's one in 18 so <laughs> he needs to he needs to move on pretty quickly or Liverpool you know 10 games in 11 games in won't be at the races Yeah as you mentioned sir Klopp was uh, initially at points to paint out I don't have a seven year problem and he was talking about how much energy he has and he even says that the the Dortmund uh, one has been misconstrued, misconstrued a bit that exit he says I was totally fine when I was at Dortmund I could have stayed there they wanted me to stay we just couldn't make the Bundesliga title it was a case of constantly players getting poached by other clubs I had no energy problem I took a year's holiday because it was fancy at that time Pep and Thomas Tuchel did it so I took a holiday I couldn't do it I was at Liverpool after four months I have no problem with energy and the situation's completely different now. Seven years is intense. We've all got older, really a lot older. And uh, this time it's nice too. So he definitely shot down any sense that he might be coming to the end. And as Tommy Conlon definitely um, focuses less on Manning and focuses more on just the relentless nature of 
how Liverpool go about their business because when Klopp's asked about being predictable and you mentioned this Kieran, he did say teams have worked out how to play against us when we're not at our best teams figured us out years ago but it still didn't work because we were exceptional whatever system we play there's no system in the world that has no weakness it's about how we perform and I think this kind of focus on the change of system that's real alarm bell stuff to me that's been the Manchester United methodology for the last couple yeah, of years yeah, yeah. oh they found two in midfield that worked this new system's going to do it yeah. three games later come a cropper yeah because that, that really struck me about the uh, so much uh, analysis of the Rangers the system against Rangers and you know, it was one game and it was against a really poor team on the night. Like, Rangers looked like a League One team. But and also, what you could read into that. They don't even know what system they played. Like, yeah, so 4 2 3 1, it was listed at. That's what Klopp said it was. Yeah, yeah. And then Klopp came out, it was, sorry, Klopp never said that. Klopp came out afterwards, said it was more of a 4 4 2. Trent Alexander Arnold said in one post match interview, writes Tommy Collin, it was more of a basic 4 4 2 than a 4 2 3 1. In another interview, he said it was kind of a 4 2 3 1. So, like, the sense that. The system here is paramount to change and everything is wrong because what Tommy Collin does, I think, really effectively is he, he, he talks about the Pep Linders uh, book yeah. and he said even just reading that, you get tired because right through that diary of last season, the Liverpool coach yeah. just talks about how the words pressing and counter pressing are repeated uh, with obsessive zeal. It is the alpha and the omega of their culture as described in that book. It becomes exhausting just to read about it on a page, never mind to have to implement it. And so he talks about so many examples where and we've seen this I think with um, Mikel Arteta where he comes in and it's like well how do I dress up the same message in a different way today? I'll do a drawing I'll get the photographer in to make a speech and so Klopp again as this brilliant communicator has different ways of doing it different times. We need your legs your heart, your lungs, your brain. Another day he's talking about how you have to press like a shoal of fish, a swarm of bees, a flight of birds, you know, all this kind of rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. But as, as Tommy points out, they have played 63 games. Our way costs a lot of energy, concedes the coach laid on in the book. But maybe it has cost them more energy than they will ever know, says Tommy. And maybe missing out on the two great prizes after such a monumental effort drained them emotionally in ways that cannot be measured either. Physically drained, emotionally crushed by the end game last May. Perhaps they just couldn't face starting all over again this season they are not machines they never work yeah, I, I, I think that's I think the core of it like so I, I know I. there's a lot of issues like I said it's a perfect storm and there, you know there's so many issues like Andy Robertson tra- form uh, Trent Alexander Arnold's issues etc the ageing legs in midfield but it all goes back to last season like you you were they were <clears throat> because City went 2-0 down against Villa they were near they were Close, you know, you could say they were 20 minutes away from winning the title, which would be the domestic treble. The first half of the Champions League final, six days later, they were much the better team in the first half against Real Madrid. Uh, They had far more shots. The Courtois, the goalkeeper, Real Madrid goalkeeper, ended up as man of the match. But they didn't win it. And I think that took, like psychologically, what that took out of you, not just physically, but that they were going for everything and it collapsed within the space of six days and within the space of a few minutes on those two days um, it's very hard to recover from you know and to, to repeat the same messages we'll go again you know and well, we'll I, do I this after um, having gone so oh, close the adrenaline gone and everything and I remember the Fulham game early on in the season and there was a real sense of Virgil van Dijk and a couple of others who are who are young enough not to be in permanent decline like some of them are just the bank is empty given everything and they're, they're not coming back I think obviously the younger ones will come back but 
looking at Van Dijk and a couple of others that day and Fulham newly promoted sunshine full of energy at home chasing every ball there were definitely quite a few Liverpool players and you could just tell they thought oh, do I have to match you for intensity and effort here I probably do but I just can't I can't summon it I've done it so often and so recently it's not there and the way the league is at the moment it's too late now yeah. And look, Tavi Conan's piece is here and it's the piece that stepped out of me. It's, development is about do, do, do. It's simple and logical. We will repeat until we vomit. They're and vomit. I'd say these Liverpool yeah. lads just like, who goes to work and wants to vomit? Go, you know? yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, at the end of it, you hold up your hand and say. Done. Yeah. Because as Kieran's saying, they haven't just played lots of games. They've had to have uh, nights where they go to the emotional well so often. So yeah. many like, oh, they really need a big one tonight. And they all invariably have done it. But yeah. you probably know as a player, Adrenaline, adrenaline, adrenaline. And then when there's either a pause or a defeat, like the Arsenal Invincibles, when they lost to Old Trafford, they hit the deck. You just, you need you need almost a time of uh, hibernation. And you're right about the timing piece, because I was watching Bayern and Dortmund last night, right? And obviously Dortmund get the last minute winner. Yeah. And the energy exuding from that group. And I was sitting there watching the game going, what was, what was the impetus for this? What was the meaning of this game to them? And it was like, oh, well, they got a point. Yeah. Oh, but look how much it meant to them. So yeah. it just is where the team cycle is. Yeah. yeah. That group just That's got it, a point. Yeah. yeah, and it's always been a high wire act. Like even last season, like, no, they drew at City. Other than that, what, they won, did they win 14 in the last 15 or something? Like, they're an incredible run. But think of in that run, how often Alisson had to make an incredible one-on-one save. Because with the high line, the gamble, you know, that mm. uh, he is so good in those situations or Van Dijk's recovery pace, etc. You know, but it's just not working to the same extent. And it's hard for to rely on something like that to work all the time. Yeah. So uh, suddenly when there is a little slackening off, those one-on-ones, the ball's ending up in the back of the net. And there are games... Uh, like Brighton could have scored seven last week yeah, yeah. Napoli could have scored seven or eight and I think you're going to few, see I wouldn't be surprised if Arsenal uh, get a lot of chances today because Arsenal are a good team now To those of you listening on Monday morning and want to tweet Kieran Cunningham about Liverpool's <laughs> 4-0 win uh, yeah. he's available and waiting for your tweets and abuse Sorry. now Sarah you picked out a piece which I suppose is tapping into an ongoing theme over the last couple of months referees being assaulted or abused in GEA I think people are a touch fatigued by this um, topic so I was interested you picked it out Donald Smith he is the GEA's national match officials manager in the mail on Sunday it's page 62 and 63 an interview with Philip Lanigan did we get anything out of this or what grabbed your eye here because I I have to say I read this and I I didn't get much out of it in some ways yeah and look I suppose I was coming at it from from a different point of view from that idea of being jaded being on the pitch being on the side of a pitch different experiences over the last kind of two three years and you know he's talking about the understanding the reality is referees are sole traders what we need to do is bring referees back towards the centre create that interest Uh, we're a group we're doing a specialised job Mm. we have to make connections with coaches games with club managers and chairmen and I was saying right you know uh, how does that come about and then he talks here about um it's the accountability and transparency over referees. And he says that there's no link yet between colleges and uh, schools and no link between former players and and schools, right? And I was thinking, okay, so so they've started this new programme, transitioners kind of feeding into coaching at underage groups and making kind of, I suppose, connections with kids and clubs, but that link hasn't been made yet. And I I was surprised that they haven't gone straight to the nub of it with, say, the GPA. 
Okay, so I had a really strong conversation with uh, a former Cork hurler a couple of weeks back, and he said, "Sarah, I can't understand how the national referees haven't linked in with the GPA to this point." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, well, "Look," he said, "take hurling as an example. We have players in the Laurie Maher, we have players in the Nicky Rackert, we have players in the Joe McDonough." incredibly good hurlers in counties that don't have an affinity with the bigger counties who know the game inside out who have garnered huge respect in the game playing the game who could be incentivized by the GPA to go in at schools go in at colleges and go in at club level and ref you know let's make it a process where these guys who are former players but you know at a level that is respected come back into the game but it has to be incentivised mm. and at least they are the heart of the game and you know obviously Donald's talking about these guys and referees becoming the heart of the game if you were a player you were always the heart of the game mm. so he felt my Cork Hurler friend who, who has played the game to the highest level that this was an opportunity lost and what's interesting is that obviously Philip has asked about miking up referees in this piece he's asked about wearing GoPros because Shane Stapleton from our game had said why not put a GoPro and Donal has listed all of the reasons why this would be an issue for GDPR purposes for uh, individual referees not being comfortable with having that level of scrutiny involved so why not look at something completely different which is involve former players or current players who are playing at a slightly lower level but incentivise them to play yeah I mean, I, I think the only solution really ultimately is I think all these programs and um, various comments, uh, it just has to become socially unacceptable in the clubhouse afterwards. It's the same with violence on the pitch. Mm. Because I, I think we still have a culture in GAA and probably in other sports where dig is thrown on pitch, referees abuse like hell. And I do think the perpetrator is regaling the lads in the pub afterwards about the fight or... La, you know, oh, oh, I think if if that became socially unacceptable, that'd be the quickest way for it to. But it would be itself. harder. It would be harder to accept the decision or to to disrespect the decision of a of a person who knew the game, who the knows game. the game That's inside true. out. That's you true. know, That's true. I suppose it just feels like you know they're they're missing the point here is that they're saying referees are an integral part of the game, which they are, mm. and maybe former players then should be. Incentivized to come. Yeah, it to might help. I guess you'll never get enough former players to make that the solution. There'll still be referees that players don't recognise in club games up and down the country. And I, I, th- I do think though that there's an opportunity right now with the GPA having such a, a forum mm. to certainly trial it. You know, they're trialing the mic, they're trialing the GoPro. Yeah, yeah. Why not trial? I this? don't think a lot of former players want to come near refereeing though. Yeah. I know, but if it's incentivised, lads, look, we're uh, talking about a cost of living crisis. Uh, well, look, there's the, like every every club referee who turns up to a game, yeah. say Mike Mogi matched on a Tuesday night, we give him 40 euro, 20 euro. And so how much would you have to pay for a well-known player to be incentivised? <laughs> to, to <coughs> as a stipend for... To referee a game. Well, maybe the government has to get involved if it becomes tax Abs- breaks. Abso- absolutely not. <laughs> Taxpayer money is not going on this. Absolutely not. Not even engaging in that. And I'll give you a hundred other things that's going on first. So no way. Gee, taxpayer There's money. There's no tax breaks. You guys, and the, honestly. But it's, it's so deeply ingrained. I, I, I honestly don't know how you tackle it because 
I think every single game I've ever gone to, I've heard people given out about the referee. Yeah. No matter how good the referee is, there's people who just, their knee-jerk reaction is if their team doesn't win, they'll blame the referee. And you see it uh, because I see, even the Premier League, uh, the paranoia, like you see the amount of, say, Liverpool fans who, who claim that virtually every referee they think seems to be from Greater Manchester. Hmm. You know, that, uh, and I, I read a survey actually that, uh, that what are seen as the big six clubs of the supporter base, they, uh, they all feel referees are biased against them. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just so deeply ingrained that they don't trust referees. And how you try to turn that around, I, I don't know how you make that culture shift. Like one of the, it's, it's very hard to do at club level, but... Uh, one of the reasons maybe there's more respect in rugby is subs and backroom staff and coaches aren't on the sideline. You know, they're up in the stands at, you know, at, uh, at the bigger games. Like at club level, it's different. But in GA, particularly, uh, you know, at clubs, they're just, it's too easy for people. You know, there could be 15 people from a club on the sideline, like mm. between subs, backroom team, etc. It's too easy it's for somebody easiest. to run on and get at a referee or yeah. abuse a referee. If you're sitting up in the stands, a bit harder. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not, not, not my job to throw my hands at <laughs> and say you'll never change it. But um, I don't see an easy solution. I just think it is the culture. And I think in 10 years' time, we'll both be back here and we can, I'll remind you. <laughs> Well, I'd love if the GPA took it on. Just yeah. just for a year or two, just to see if they no, could. No, absolutely. Yeah, they should. Especially with those players who've who've played in Croke Park over the last couple of years. I was at three finals in Croke Park this year. There's some incredible mm. hurlers from Kildare, Antrim, uh, Tyrone. Um, yeah. They're well able to ref games and I think they would garner a lot of respect if mm. they were incentivised to get involved. Yeah. So what um, GA matches are you predominantly on sidelines for these days? So I've just gone back in with Nave Marne Oaks for my second season. I okay. uh, had a very interesting meeting with Kleena O'Connor, who was on your panel here a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's my, that's my full-time gig for the next uh, 10 months. And are sidelines threatening places for referees in the main or OK? Um, I, I genuinely think the, the support that Donald talks about here, um, he said, you know, at inter-county level, there's obviously a lot of support and, and there's a lot of people around the players. But if there's somebody going to a match in a rural part of Ireland you know a junior club game and he, he's on his own he's hopping out of the car he doesn't know those involved if yeah. you see somebody running at him that is psychologically damaging so there's a lot of protection required for referees but that has to come from the clubs and he talks about that here you know the clubhouse has somewhere between three and four or five hundred members at a at a you know a normal club setup. Mm. there's three or four hundred five hundred people who want the club to be seen in the best light so that's the starting point making the clubhouse and the club pitch I think, yeah. a, a, a safe place for yeah. referees to come to. And that's that's shown to be done by the club. Page uh, 61 of the Mail on Sunday. Kieran, I know you're obviously a passionate uh, boxing fan. It was quite the week for boxing, to say the least. And yeah. Utterly... Um, yeah. Uh, as far as I know, I, I didn't see it. it uh, I, I think I looked through all the papers and I didn't see anything else in any paper on this, which... Which uh, surprised me because it's, you know, it's been such a, I think it's been a terrible year for boxing across the board. You know, when you tie in the Daniel Kinahan situation, uh, the sanctions that were brought against him, and, you know, and the relationships within boxing that were highlighted before and subsequently. Uh, when you look at the embrace of Saudi Arabia and far less criticism 
of boxing doing it than golf is getting, that boxing seems to be given, you know, allowed to get away with this. Uh, the Olympic situation, which unless there's something extraordinary happens, boxing has gone for the Olympics after Paris 2024. And what really struck me about the, the, the Olympic situation is uh, the lack of reaction, mm. you know, because like Kelly Harrington's autobiography is coming out on October 27th. And she collaborated with Roddy Doyle on that. And Roddy is a, a Booker Prize winner. And the only person he's ever done a book like this, like a, a ghosted book with before, is Roy Keane. So it shows the kind of national figure Kelly Harrington is. And that's because she's an Olympic champion. But boxing is going for the Olympics and there's hardly been any reaction. Like across the media, I've seen very, very little conversation. And it shows how shallow the interest in boxing is and how how marginalised in a way is becoming and a story like this just increases it because people who don't know is there was supposed to be a big fight last night in London between Conor Benn and Chris Eubank Jr it was being sold to a large extent on the rivalry between their fathers in the 90s mm-hmm. which were you know their fights that went you know were, um, iconic iconic yeah it's probably a decent word for it yeah but um Conor Ben, uh, Reith Al-Samari of the Daily Mail, a very good journalist who's been very good in the Kinnan story as well. He was a proper journalist. He, he found, he revealed, I think it was on Wednesday, yeah. that um, Conor Ben had failed a drugs test for, um, if I can remember offhand, I think it's called Climafone. Clomiphene. Clomiphene, which is a, a, a fertility drug used by women, but it also uh, increases testosterone levels. So it's, it can be used as a PED. And I'm waiting on the, uh, the B sample, the, the version of the B sample, but it looks like that the authorities knew about this for a number of days before this story was revealed. And the only, there was only a statement from the British Boxing Board of Control two hours after uh, Reith Al-Samari uh, published the story. And they called for the fight to be pulled. And it raises one, one huge question. Then the promoters, which is Eddie Heron and the Wasserman group, they tried to go ahead. They wanted the fight to still go ahead. Yeah. And Eubank was saying... And if you look at doping, doping is more dangerous in, in, in boxing than virtually all other sports. If you're do- running against a sprinter who dopes, you're not putting your life on the line. But if somebody is doped, they could have serious power. And there, 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 are, there are instances of fighters have gone in against doped fighters and have got a serious beating. And, you know, it's, it, you know, fighters have lost their lives or had life-changing injuries because of what's happened in the ring. So you couldn't... Al- you, you know, the willingness to allow dopers into the ring is scary. And eventually the, the pressure came on and the fight was pulled. And there was a lot of um, financial pressures to go ahead with the fight. Because, you know, TV deals, have been, you know, broadcast deals have been signed. A lot of tickets have been sold. Uh, so I could see the pressure on the promoters to go ahead. But you couldn't go ahead with it. You know, the boxers on the undercard will really suffer for this because they would have paid for their training camp. and They'll end up not getting any fee out of this. But this story in the mail by Edmund Wilson finds that uh, Eddie Heron, and I have no reason to, I, I would say Eddie Heron's company is pretty representative, that this would be the case with other promoters, but that he's found, that a study by the Mail on Sunday has found 30% of all main event fights staged by Eddie Heron this year involved at least one fighter who has failed a dope test or been sanctioned for an anti-doping offence. 
And just as an example, on the undercard of Anthony Joshua's rematch with Andy Ruse Jr. in Saudi Arabia in 2019, five boxers on the undercard had tested positive for doping. During their careers. This wasn't their a careers, testing yeah. in advance of that yeah. fight, but during their during careers. Their careers. Yeah. And you know, as, as is pointed out here, no, not all... Um, uh, Hearn and Matchroom don't represent all the fighters on the cards they promote, you know, so it's not to point the figures at Eddie Hearn, but it just points out how widespread doping is, how often, uh, because of the, you know, this is something that came up with the Kenyan situation, the lack of governance within boxing, that there's no proper international governing body. So you can be banned by one sanctioning body, but you can fight elsewhere. Yeah. You know, there was one boxer, uh, his name escapes me, who wasn't allowed to fight in the US, but he was fighting in Europe and UK, and he, was, he would test positive yeah. for pretty serious PEDs. For, for, for me, it's good that the piece in the paper, I, I don't think making it about Eddie Hearn is the right yeah, point, yeah. because Eddie Hearn represents so many fighters that, of course, if boxing has a problem, then some of his fights are going to have problems. It's a boxing-wide problem. It's not an Eddie Hearn problem, although his behaviour this week was nothing short of reprehensible. Yeah. And... I mean, there are still so many questions, as you said, what was going to happen before that male story was published. And we're told that this sample was um, the results were in by September 23rd. Yeah. And it may even have been taken before that late August, some people have claimed. And the B sample was never tested. Yeah. Therefore, that gave wiggle room to say, well, look, due process and the B sample hasn't been tested yet. Now, in 99% of cases, the B sample validates the A sample. But also, it shouldn't take very long to test the B sample if you tested the A sample. Yeah. Why had they still not tested the, a, the B no, sample and there's a, by there's October? There's a couple of really important questions. One of them is, Joe, uh, if Riyadh al-Samari hadn't got wind of this test and published this story, yeah. would the fight have gone ahead? Well, this and is, this the is one speech. that comes yeah. off that, that's related to that is, has this ever happened before? Because you would suspect now the way this operated, uh, because this only came out because of a leak, yeah. that there have been fighters who tested positive before and the fights have been allowed to go ahead. You know, there's a lot of reason to suspect that's the case. Yeah. Well, the, the other um, point to make as well, and, and it just exposed further what everyone suspected, which is that vested interests wanted to ride roughshod overall um, right thinking, including Eddie Hearn. So Eddie Hearn's talking all week about, look, B. Samuel has been tested. He's passed every other test. He's entitled to process. This was only a VADA one. He's passed all the UCAD one, all that kind of stuff. And then what quickly came out, and it's quoted here in the Edmund uh, Willison piece in the mail. You may have seen or heard the clip, but Eddie Hearn was on the other side of this kind of a scenario when one of his fighters was against Billy Joe Saunders. And again, he'd failed a drugs test in the lead up to the bout. And this was voluntary testing as well. And Eddie Hearn back in 2018 is literally saying, what's the point in signing up for drugs testing if when you fail, everyone just goes, oh, don't worry about it. Let's just let him fight. You can't ignore it. Otherwise, the sport's a mockery. Yeah, yeah. Fast forward four years. It just shows this general sense, I think, that boxing has, whereby they think, look, no I think no, I think no, I genuinely no think boxing is no in big trouble because of this embrace of lawlessness and the way people use that's boxing to explain away everything. Yeah, so but they're right had, though. Sorry, they're right. Yeah, yeah. No but one so cares. Many people, so everyone, many people, uh, people. Everyone would have watched this fight. In fact, more people watched this would have watched this fight. And I heard Steve Bunce on yeah. Five Live, who was not condoning what had happened, no. but he was on Five Live in a radio discussion on Thursday night saying, "Look, Ben needs to go away and." If he needs service time, service time, whatever. But he said, when this fight eventually happens, yeah, yeah. it'll be bigger because of this. Yeah, yeah. Now, he wasn't saying that's a great thing, but he was stating 
that is the reality yeah, of the but, marketplace. Yeah, but I think that's a problem it's, with the boxing media well, generally, and Steve Bunce, you know, is a prominent figure within it. The boxing media generally that they are allowing a lot of them are allowing this kind of stuff to go by and just say that's boxing and we don't. Is know, it there boxing was a, or entertainment? Because I think that's it's entertainment and yeah. it's like the WWF. I don't yeah. care what happens, but it's entertaining. And I did watch too much of it when I was a kid well, uh, well, because it was entertainment. So has has boxing moved from the realm of sport? to just entertainment. Hmm. What's, it's, what's, it's your, what's your senses? Because I know you're yeah, very yeah. passionate about this. Sorry, yeah, let's yeah, get, no, bring so Sarah sorry, in a little sorry, bit. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. What, what's your sense as a, the casual floating voter who may watch some fights and not others? It's entertainment. Yeah. And, and it's the stories around it that will draw me in as opposed to the sport or the spectacle of the boxing. I don't enjoy watching the hits and I don't enjoy watching the, the physicality and the violence of it because I, I do find it violent. Mm. But in the lead up to it, if, if a story or boxer or a couple of boxers capture my imagination I will I tune in on a Saturday a night people, to watch yeah. it but I, I don't see it as sport just because of I suppose the the fact that the lawlessness is there and there's so yeah. many things that there's so many things that I can't grasp the, the yeah. reality of it does yeah. that make sense? No totally and, and I suspect can think of a year's time so by all accounts uh, the Eubank camp were consulted here and told you know what, what was going on and I sh- we should state that Conor Ben denies taking drugs and absolutely is insistent he'll be vindicated but the Eubank camp were happy to fight because I guess finance rules there as well but I guarantee in a year in the build up to the fight the Eubank camp will be we're going to take down this drugs cheat he's a drugs cheat how dare he do that to me and that'll be the selling point to try and grab you back in good versus evil yeah. clean versus <laughs> doped all that kind of stuff and like they'll, they'll be rubbing their money rubbing their hands yeah. Yeah, but on <laughs> anticipation of rubbing their money but I saw on uh, I think it was in balls.ie Jason Quigley um, was interviewed about this and Jason said that he was tested far more as an amateur in the Irish setup than he ha- has been as a professional yeah. even though uh you know, it's it's far less dangerous to dope as an amateur than a professional. Uh, me, or you know, because there's more protections, there's shorter fights, etc. Um, but you know, it has a reckless attitude towards it. It is a reckless. It is a terrible attitude towards scrutiny of the sport. Like since the Kinnan situation, nothing has been done to address the lack of governance within the sport or to stop another Kinnan emerging. And on Thursday, a, a press conference went ahead that was scheduled but the press conference started with an announcement that no questions would be allowed yeah. and Eddie Hearn read a prepared statement and since then Eddie Hearn did an interview with an online, an online outfit called IFL TV who used to be financed by MTK Global which glossed over the story I know the British Boxing Board of Control have been asked for comment on this by various journalists over the last few days and no comment has been forthcoming so th- th- there's a huge lack of transparency within boxing uh, there's something I, I, I've just been working on and I got a lot of data on this and I was surprised about it because you hear so much about MMA taking over but worldwide boxing's audience is still miles ahead of uh, uh, MMA if, when I was going through the data so it's still a hugely popular sport but it's a sport that uh, I think a lot of people are st- even though it's got a huge audience I think the fact that there's so little coverage across the papers today shows a lot of people are sick of it and don't want to deal with it anymore you know, they think that's, ju- you know, it's just uh, they've zoned out of it, you know, the, because there's just so many bad news stories with it. And the Olympic one summed it up for me that a story that we celebrate so much because of the success it's brought to Ireland, that losing an Olympic spot now hardly raises a ripple that people have, are gone from it. You know, they've, they've, 
have yeah. lost interest. I mean, potentially, I think I think on the Olympic one, people sort of feel oh, this will get sorted out. It'll be course. sorted out. I think people have that suspicion. It's 2028. They'll sort it out one way or another. It's brinkmanship. So maybe I think if we were at the on the eve of the 2028 Olympics and this was this had happened, it would be a much bigger story. And on the second point, I think people do have the perception of boxing that you're talking about. But I think like, you know, fans like Sarah, lots of others, probably myself to an extent. I'm not a boxing aficionado. I think if Fury's fighting Joshua in two months time, everyone's like, I'll zoom back in for that one on the understanding that this sport is uh, decrepit in so many ways but it won't stop you watching the big fights I think that's the reality it's entertainment on a Saturday night yeah. you know and that's that's why I watched it yeah and like it's it, it's terrible to say entertainment when it's like one of the greatest sporting tests of any pursuit you know it's ridiculous to cast know, it as that yeah. I know but that's what it has boiled itself down to because yeah. of the, the way that they've taken it because I think the only thing that keeps some of us still involved or with any interest in it is like you, you would have dealt with Eric Donovan and like Eric, uh, you know, won his EU title two weeks ago. And there's, there are personalities in in the sport like Eric that are so captivating and decent people, you know, that that keeps you interested. But there's the vast. No, there are so many people in positions of power around the sport that just but turn actually, you off. ironically, and you're talking about Eric, I'm watching Hell Week this yeah, yeah. last four weeks and I know more about Eric now than I ever did right. yeah, because yeah. of the sociability of him yeah, in yeah. the show. Now, I'd love to watch the fight two weeks ago with that body of yeah, content yeah. in my armour and I'd have enjoyed the fight you know how's he doing by the way I, I saw one week and he was getting a severe <laughs> warning and I thought his days are numbered so he's, is he still hanging in see he was yeah he, he well it's he was fighting a girl in a, in, in a fight I think it was oh, Rebecca yeah. O'Rourke or other and he wasn't taking her seriously in the eyes of, of the okay. lads and you know there was things like that that he was expected to kind of show his dominance and right. he was holding back and well maybe there's a degree of like you lads don't understand what a professional boxer is capable <laughs> of here <laughs> there's an edit there's an editability about this you know what yeah, I mean yeah. and obviously but I'm really enjoying him because he's really pushing himself in it okay and the Sunday papers on off the ball the Sunday papers on off the ball Speaking of pushing yourself, I think our favourite interview, perhaps the three of us, is in the Sunday Times, pages 16, 17. Most of you, I suspect, are very familiar with Damien Brown and his um, trip across the Atlantic. And I think someone like Brown calls for an in-depth interview and Peter O'Reilly sits down with him and uh, we get it. And uh, Peter obviously knows Damien from his rugby days and... He mentions initially, so he's tall, 42 years of age. He's slightly stooped when they meet, as you'd expect, given what he's put, he's put his body through. Uh, the hands are surprisingly soft, but bent into a permanent curl. It will be months before the ache in their shortened tendons and ligaments begins to fade. So, uh, as I'm sure you've seen, Damien Brown is a, an extreme adventurer and he rode from New York to Galway and it took 108 days, which I think very few of us can get our heads around. So... Um, I mean, again, it's, it's the details, I suppose, which kind of illustrate what he uh, went through at various points. Like, for instance, he talks about the difficulty uh, mentally in this trip. And he's done various amazing things that most of us couldn't uh, dream of doing, climbing mountains and uh, various treks of different things. He said, though, this is the toughest thing I've done. Not physically tougher, 
uh, which is interesting. But mentally and emotional, by far the toughest because of the nature of it. Because for 60 or 70% of the days, I was going backwards at some point. Uh, one day of that is grand. Two or three days is hard. 63 days of going backwards is absolute psychological torture. I couldn't believe the stress of it. Uh, say you put in a two-hour shift on the oars and travel one or two nautical miles and then rest. Then you check the GPS and in 10 minutes while you've been stopped taking your rest, you've already lost 0.3 or 0.4 of a nautical mile going backwards. Very stressful. You need a lot of luck. You might need some assistance from the Gulf Stream, but I got no luck with winds on the second half of the crossing. The first half took 44 days. The second half of the trip took 68 days. It was rowing purgatory. So even that was kind of... uh, and amazing insight. And he talks about arriving home, so he crashes, obviously, because he lost a load of his oars and the whole thing became very messy at the end. And uh, he's got his head around the fact now that he's, he's he crashed. Initially, he thought it was a big disappointment that he had to be rescued. And now he thinks to crash on the rocks, it's uh, the perfect ending. But uh, when he crashed and he was rescued on the beach, kind of crawling through rocky water, uh, he was brought instantly to see his partner and their 18-month-old daughter. Uh, who was staying at a friend's house. It was after 2am. I didn't want to call to alarm anyone. I just knocked on the door. Roselle was in one of the front bedrooms, so she stuck her head out of the window and said, who's there? And I said, baby, it's me, I'm home. And Peter Riley says, when they make the movie, people will say it's a bit too Hollywood. And he was uh, thrilled, as you can imagine, to see his uh, daughter still recognised him, just 18 months uh, old. And then just a last one from me. There's too much in this piece to get it all, but I guess the the interesting, uh, or the thing I'm, interested in as much as the physical aspect is uh, the psychological aspect why he's doing this what he's looking for out there what he's finding out there and uh, he does obviously strike he is a a deep thinker so what he's learned is I crave connection with people the way I would have framed things is that I'm an introvert like when I was playing for Breve I used to live out in the country with Elmo I used to think am I not a social being that's not the case. It's just that my cup is filled quickly, but I need it. You know, it's more important than I realise to me, which was a very interesting uh, thought. And then he talks about how he uh, craves introspection and likes going to very dark places in his head and epiphanies happen and thoughts happen. And uh, he's not your average uh, rugby player turned uh, extreme adventurer that's for sure so I mean how could you not find this interesting I suppose well it began as a two man operation right yeah and I was there with a couple of friends this week and I was thinking who would I have started this adventure with in a boat and I was thinking of all of my former teammates and I was thinking you know I'm quite like swashbuckling kind of get you over the line but I need somebody unflappable in the boat to kind of get me through the hundrum and I was I actually had a, had a kind of a discussion with my friend. She said, would you not pick me? And I said, no. <laughs> and I said, I don't think you'd pick me either. I said, I think we'd have a, had a falling out, you know, mm-hmm. quite early. And we still haven't settled on who our kind of teammate in the boat would be. And uh, I think okay. it was, uh, I think it's something, you know, I'd love to have known, I suppose, why Damien chose his rowing mate in the first place, yeah, because he sounds question. like somebody who thinks things through to an incredible degree. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point, yeah. yeah he rem- um, did you ever talk to David Ford much, the former Ireland goalkeeper? Yeah, once or twice. Yeah, because he reminds me very much of David Ford. And I wonder, is it a Galway thing that the, there's a spirituality and uh, they go deep in, into themselves? Because some of the quotes in here, uh, like he has a podcast uh, called Deep Roots that he recorded on his phone in his cabin in the boat. And uh, there's a little extract here from it. I'm getting pulverised in this battle. 
thoroughly deflated. I wake every morning with a sense of hope, opportunity, excitement, optimism. And they're not thin layers. They're genuinely thick blankets, values and beliefs that have nurtured over years and years and years. F me, they've been worn thin by the constant barrage of setbacks. And there are a few passages like this, like that in this interview that read like to say the start of a novel yeah. or the narration of the start of a film. And like, you're a professional broadcaster, uh, so obviously you can talk well. But there's, there's, You'd be surprised. Yeah. Well, you've 27 <laughs> awards before Nathan, Rob, Jen Friday. But, but uh, the, um, there's not many people I've come across who can talk like that so fluently. No, struck me and too. So, uh, it struck me. I had the same, just from a professional point of view, I yeah. did think to myself, I'm going to go home and listen to that because I want to see how long the pauses are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much thinking time? Because if he's just coming up with this yeah. in a fluent way, it's very impressive. Yeah, very impressive. A very impressive guy all around. Like, um, you look at the things he's done other than this, like he's completed the, the Marathon de Sable, a six-day 250km race across the Sahara with a survival kit on your back. He's climbed Everest. He's climbed Kilimanjaro. And... The significance of, of uh, rowing east to uh, west to east is that you're pulling as much more demanding because more treacherous winds, less predictable currents. And the statistics from the Ocean Rowing Society up to 2020, 156 successful solar rows east to west, the other way just 16. You know, so. Uh, it's quite a feat. And like, he's such a big man. If you saw, like, it was on the Late Late Show on Friday and they had oh, right. the boat done. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, or there, the, and he sat in it. Like, and you look at, you know, to fold himself into that tiny space for mm. an hour will be difficult. To do it for that duration and, you know, that amount of effort you're putting into and dealing with the elements is just extraordinary. And I'm sure he had prepared to lose his travel mate. But at the same time, you are setting off as a duo and suddenly you yeah. must feel acutely lonely. Yeah. And after just 13 days, so it says his uh, travel mate after 13 days had to be rescued. Fergus Farrell suffering from illness and exhaustion. And I'm thinking, yeah, no, shit, like we, yeah, 13 days, incredible achievement. You know, I wouldn't make five. It, and what's interesting for me on this piece, and we'll go to Brawley later when he talks about not necessarily living up to his potential. Mm. Right. He says here. I do not regret reaching my potential as a player. Yeah. And when I've talked to teams since, I explained that one of the reasons I was pulled so much towards extreme adventure was because it was an avenue where I could continue to explore something that held me back in rugby, which was my mind. I was an inconsistent rugby player because my mind was inconsistently organised. Yeah. I could be the best player on the pitch one week and then the next I was the 125 kg baggage that the whole team was carrying. Yeah. And I think a lot of players will resonate with that sentiment the highs and lows are so extreme. I don't think I'd put myself in a boat for 108 days to prove myself, but something that definitely struck with me. Yeah. And one uh, very last, because I think the the colour and the richness of his story, and I suspect there's a book coming, will be in the detail. So, like, on day 24, as a random example, they talk about it, he's engulfed in a tropical storm for 16 hours. So he says, winds of 49, 50 knots. And he says, I got capsized three times. Now, you have to understand about Damien Brown, he can't swim. No. Now that's the that is the crazy. Yeah. yeah. Like Damien, I don't have to go with you. Learn how to swim before you do this. But anyway, <laughs> but would it make any difference? Well, somebody did say it just to delays the inevitable. Yeah, if you're in the middle of the Atlantic yeah. and you go all overboard, like <laughs> no, it's true. Are, it's true. But uh, so hang I, on. I think he, there's but, a documentary but, coming because sorry, oh, just because uh, that's why he hasn't shaved the beard. 
because for reasons of continuity, there's a few more scenes to be shot, and he, he wants to get rid of the beard. And he's now. moving to Queensland. He's going back yeah, to the Sunshine partner. State where yeah. his partner. She keep the beard. It looks magnificent. He's very <laughs> he's incredible. He's very handsome. Honestly, I said, "What would I look like after 108 days in a boat?" And that was the other thing I had with my teammate. I said, "What would we have looked like?" Well, we came out of the boat. <laughs> he's 30. If I had a beard. <laughs> state the obvious <laughs> 30 kgs lighter for starters which is what he's lost yeah. but anyway just to picture this you're, you can't swim there's a tropical storm for 16 hours and he says I was capsized three times and he said he was on the para anchor I presume that means he's anchored somehow and so he says it's not meant to happen as in you shouldn't capsize three times the anticipation of the fourth capsize was the longest hours of my life were the longest hours of my life I was mentally fried because the belief I had going into this is that the cabin is impenetrable and no matter what happens I'll always be safe in the cabin but those three capsizes had shown that water was getting into the cabin and if the electrics were fried you're looking at all sorts of complications so you're just lying there in the darkness uh, listening for it to come all the waves making different noises some of them make the hissing noise and they're bad um, so imagine sitting there waiting for that to happen but know. for somebody who wants to be in control of a situation which he appears to be the ocean seems the wrong place to take your chance. does he want to be in control I, what, he wants to take control back doesn't he I guess I, yeah, I don't know what he wants so there, there's a fearlessness there that yeah. and you know, he's obviously pushing himself to an extreme but you think he'd like to be able to control certain aspects of it but certainly not when you're lying waiting for no. the waves to come at you no Damien, I would keep the beard. That's all I have to uh, <laughs> offer up. So, uh, we've talked Klopp and boxing and Damien Brown and the... Uh, well, Republic of Ireland Scotland is on this Tuesday. It's kind of kind of an interesting piece. Um, Mick Foley in the Sunday Times is just talking about the coverage of women's sports uh, generally and he's making the uh, point in his piece that really if you look at various uh, metrics, be it the RTE website or even the Off The Ball YouTube channel mentions as well or even television events uh, the female sporting events which tend to really capture the imagination are individuals. So like mm-hmm. Katie Taylor, Amanda Serrano on the RTE website gets half a million page impressions. Kira McGeehan 274 uh, Leona McGuire uh, 240 Irish Open Rachel Blackmore Gold Cup only 134 now that's the RTE website maybe beyond that it was a bigger story but uh, the point is teams haven't really grabbed the imagination although he says the the soccer team obviously play their playoff game on Tuesday initially we're getting 50,000 a match they're now getting 125 maybe heading for 150 still way down on what the men would get but it's a big improvement he says same for radio a quick look at the numbers of uh, clips for off the ball the YouTube channel reflects the vast gulf between traditional staples of GA football and rugby and women's sport. And so uh, the point is that making a World Cup obviously would be um, big for coverage of women's sports and might allow a team to kind of become as big as Katie Taylor or as big as some of the individuals, Rachel Blackmore. Kind of interesting glimpse yeah. into the, the listening habits. We would see that ourselves in the YouTube clips. But look what it took for the English women's team to, to break the kind of national psyche in the UK yeah. in a much bigger population. So I think we're doing quite very well and that Irish team is doing incredibly well to capture the imagination the way they are right now. They have a massive support and they have a sponsor, which the Irish men's team don't. So that speaks volumes. You wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, that the Irish women's team would have a sponsor and the men's team mm. would have failed to, to have one. Yeah, that's true. Now, at the same time, I, I don't know what the rationale is there. Um, but like if, if you want to sponsor the men's team and you do you're going to get more viewing figures than the women's team so I, I can't work out the rationale there I don't know I don't know why the men's team would be 
affiliated with the previously toxic FAI situation and the women's mm. team would be absolved of it. Um, so I, I don't know commercially what's going on there. I feel like the men's national team should. really should have a sponsor, you should. know. Yeah. Um, but I, I suppose that's a, a side issue. It does feel like this team has probably caught the imagination more than any other female sports team in the country. I think but it's so. a communication piece as well. You yeah. look at Arteta with Arsenal and he's after bringing a social media team to build back that uh, relationship with the team. Yeah. The Irish women's team, because of the individuals involved, the likes of Katie McCabe playing with Arsenal, Denise Sullivan playing in America, the social media and the communication around that team has been incredibly positive. And yeah. It's, yeah. it's grown separate to Ireland almost and separate to the FAI. Yeah. yeah. I think RT deserves a lot of credit, in fairness, because they get such a kicking around sports coverage in mm. general, but particularly around soccer coverage. But they've used <coughs> so many current and current and ex uh, women's internationals, yes. uh, both on, on the men's game and on, on the women's game as pundits. And they've just made uh, the personalities within the sport more familiar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of the, like, no, I think all the newspapers now send to the games abroad uh, the internet, the women's team's games abroad but they're chasing the tails of RT in a way, RT kind of started this and uh, that now more outlets are now taking it more seriously and even though the numbers are slow to, to build I think it's a long game, like it's something that should have been done a while ago, that there should have been parity in, in, in terms of coverage and I think it will catch up and I think like I find now um I'm just watching far more and it's not like a deliberate choice I'm going to be no, it's making quite an effort thing. it's just yeah, yeah. okay I'll watch, like I watched a lot of the European Championships and the WSL is very yeah, entertaining yeah. I really enjoy that do you I see I, I, I have so much to bloody watch that mm. I can't even watch what I really absolutely it's essential I watch that so I, I haven't got around to watch as much as that as I would like actually they've done a really good job in terms of the timings like they put it on have, yeah. b- b- before the men's setups on a Saturday so you're just kind of you're running you could watch from 10 until 8 o'clock you could yeah. watch women's into men's do you know what I mean and yeah, yeah, yeah. Sky Sports have done a really good job with that it's it's accessible to me which yes. wasn't before I watched coverage uh, Liverpool Everton was on a couple of weeks ago and I was yeah. watching it I have to say I became frustrated um, I thought the coverage was um too patronising over mistakes mm. okay. and I, I, there was no problem with saying that was a bad goal to give away as opposed to yeah, yeah. nothing to see there there was no mistake when actually something bad happened yeah. just a personal yeah, yeah that preference. can be an issue at times um, I think definitely yeah, yeah. how do you feel by the way uh, when you see a current player analysing their own team because for me I think I've no interest I, I don't I, this person can't say I'm talking men's or women's, but just that, that practice of current player from the team is here in the studio. I think they're compromised. Uh, Completely compromised. Yeah. I, I suppose I haven't seen... Well, you're talking about current players in the Irish setup at the minute who are in and out of the team. So we have the likes of Chloe Mustaki, Stephanie Roach. They've been in and out of the squads over the last yeah. two seasons with RT. And maybe or, that's, or injured. Or injured. Yeah. And maybe that's the only mistake that RT have made is to have players who are in and out of the panel so frequently. It's a very emotional thing to be Stephanie Roach talking about a, a current teammate who's her competitor. Yeah. And then the following week taking her on in a training session. Or like, the manager got everything tactically wrong today. Yeah. I mean, if you think that, can you say <laughs> that? You I don't think you can. Say that. The only argument for it is they probably have a much deeper understanding of those players who have less of a profile who we're not mm. seeing every week and can provide that. Mm. And I think that works okay po- pre-match. But post-match, if something needs to be said, yeah. I don't think... A very difficult place it. for them to be. Yeah. I, do we see it more in rugby because of the amount of rugby games in, in the men's side? You don't tend to see current. current. Players, no. You see recently retired and they mm. also find it difficult. Yeah, Luke yeah. Fitzgerald is one that comes to mind. He 
struggles? No, he'd be opinionated actually. But is that is it too close to the bone? Like has he kind of has he made enemies? Yeah, I don't know. You don't. I, I never. I I'll don't ask know. him. <laughs> we'll ask him. <laughs> I'm sure. Like when he's walking for his morning coffee, he's probably saw someone at distance and thought, "Oh God," you know, because and that affects you the next yeah. time you go on. Like it's we're such a small country in that respect. It's uh, it's tricky. By the way, as an aside, like so, I, on our YouTube. Uh, views like rugby is kind of off the charts high yeah. I think because there's no English media doing any ru- Irish rugby there's no, we almost have you have kind of like a, a monopoly on, and there's a very dedicated audience and football is very high uh, although there's a lot of competition when you're talking about the Premier League GA would want to be careful yeah, yeah. It's quite low you know mm. yeah it's, it doesn't grab necessarily no, I, I've heard that uh, or I've, I've heard that and seen that with various figures from, from different sites and different outlets and uh, <clears throat> it's like even though there's a huge amount of GA fans, a lot of and a huge amount of people involved in the GA, it's just that I, it's I, become quite dull and predictable to a lot of people the coverage of it. Because but I wonder is it that it's so concentrated? Because yeah. I'll hop into a taxi on a Saturday, <coughs> going here. So two taxis yesterday. I was obviously having a, fl- a flush day, but one was a Liverpool supporter, one was a United supporter. Neither of them had any interest in GA. Right. Yeah. This is in the capital. This is 1.5 million people, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and neither of them cared about the GA. Mm. So although we say the GA is the heart of the community, the community is out in West Clare. It's not yeah. in Dublin City where the population is. And that's why the, I think the, the grasp of that aspect is so low. Yeah. And to be fair, like certain, like the the football pot does really well, and, and especially around the big games, I suppose. But just your, you know, your average intercounty footballer interviewed. Yeah, doesn't I, I, like I listened to this lot last bad. week no. uh, when uh, when you had Michael Verdi and Gary O'Toole on, and you know this split season thing came up again, and, Ma- and Michael was very positive in terms of the club and the club stories, but. It struck me that you know a lot of the ones that are highlighted, like he was saying, there's great stories. Are like Kieran McMahon is still playing, you know, he's nearly fifty and uh, still playing for his club. But Kieran McManus is a profile because he played for Ireland. He won a Leinster title with Offaly. It's because of his inter-county days, because he, he, you know, he was an all-star, that you still need the county involvement often to get people on board with coverage. Mm. And now you have a pretty short uh, championship season. So I, I still think it's a challenge. Like you look, there's so many county finals around and county, you look through the papers and there's still... the. There seems to have been a decision taken that the clubs don't, club doesn't sell. Well, it's quite so to f- to finish on GA because we're right against the clock now. We're running into the studio in just a moment for the the radio show. <coughs> there is a, a really good piece on Garnish GA Club, which is uh, technically the furthest GA Club from Crow Park. They're way down in Cork, four hundred kilometres, and as you might imagine, rural depopulation is affecting things drastically. It's a great piece. Probably don't have time to tease it apart now but so that's that was very enjoyable uh, but there is a degree like I was flicking through the Sunday World to see GA what are they doing and like it was interesting this isn't a criticism by the way it's just the reality of, of how the coverage is done you've Pat's plan and it's like my rule changes to save GA you know no back pass to the keeper you have to kick the ball out past the 45 that stuff or like you know they, they picked in, an, in a separate piece our all-star team of players who haven't won in All-Ireland it's quite, you know, it's it's really milking every last drop. It's difficult. Um, it's what Michal O'Mara used to call winter talk, but winter talk now starts in, in August. August yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Brian Mullins is still being talked about. Joe Brawley um, writes about him. Obviously, he would know him very well from when Mullins managed Derry. And he tells a couple of anecdotes of like the, the kind of fearless, aggressive Mullins. And then he also says he was a complex, complex man with a decent and a decent human being with a huge heart for all the mythical status, for all those glorious exploits. Exploits. He was a shy person, awkward in new company, allergic to small talk. And uh, Brawley makes an admission that he felt that Mullins had an uneasy relationship with Brawley, uneasy friends. He referred to me as a bollocks. In my company, he would say, do you know this bollocks? And uh, I think for him, the shadow of failure hung over me, that ultimately I was a disappointment to him. Indeed, when I look back in those years, 97 to 2000, I was a disappointment to myself. Uh, he loved our group, the remnants of 93, me and my prime young players coming through. He could see we had the potential to regain Sam. There's nothing worse than wasting your potential, something that cannot be said of Brian Mullins, which is a great closing paragraph. Uh, you mentioned, Sarah, that uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't forgotten or hadn't realised uh, underdogs. 2006. So that would have been my first experience of Brian. So I was captain. We were playing Cork. We didn't know at the time that this was going to be the Cork team that would go on to win 10 All-Ireland. So ah, okay. as Juliet Murphy is running up the field, roaring, get them for 20, get them for 20. I was thinking, we're already dead. <laughs> Just leave me be. But I think from my... That defeat's aged well. Yeah. So my experience of Brian then, though, he was the manager of the team. Obviously, it was... Uh, an amazing kind of setup in that it was completely contrived, right? Uh, Monster- Television. <sighs> what? Monster <laughs> final, Turles, Hayes Hotel. The panel is given a free bar in the top floor of Hayes Hotel. Cork and Tip have played. The cameras are in. We're having a party. We're staying in the monastery next door, and we all have to be back by one a.m. And Brian is sitting on the stoop at one a.m. of the monastery, waiting for us to get back. To be fair, k- kudos <laughs> to the producer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, chapeau. That's good TV. Was this football or Kamau? Football. Football, okay, yeah. 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 Okay, so it's, okay, yeah. brilliant. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and look, there was players who, you know, obviously got in before half 12 and then there was a small share of us who pushed the button and were arrived in, I'd say, two minutes to, to one but with Brian roaring up. pretty good. Roaring up this long avenue and he said, I can see you. <laughs> You've two minutes. <laughs> Sean O'Gonnell from Galway was there as well. Okay. And uh, I just thought he always was a gent. And actually, I played with Vincent for six years after that. So Brian was always around the club and he was also my neighbour on Hoth Road. And I would meet Brian inevitably either going to work or coming from work because we both cycled to work. I only cycled into town, but Brian was cycling to UCD every mm. day. Wow. Like a, a massive round trip. And he wasn't a man for small talk. If he needed to talk to me about something, we'd have a chat. But if he didn't, Sarah, nod, good luck. He was yeah. gone. And I loved him. He yeah. was brilliant. You, yeah, because yeah, uh, there's been... Uh, one of the things that interested me in this is that it's... Um, it was last Friday week he passed away. And there's still pieces appearing about him. And there was a few yesterday as well that it shows the impact he made. But the, the pieces I found of most uh, interest are the people who actually knew him, you course, know, knew yeah. him really well. So there wasn't just, um, you know, telling a few, you know, it wasn't the kind of Celtic Twilight stuff that, that looked at this warrior, or this blonde-haired <laughs> glam rock type fella who, who, who rocked through the 70s. But, uh, like, there's a, there was a great piece on the currency by Fintan Drury, who, you know, the former RT journalist who was a communications professional then, and there was a connection with UCD, and Brian Mullins got in touch with him once and asked him to meet for a coffee. And uh, Finton wrote that he, he was kind of puzzled what this was about. And he'd heard that uh, Finton's mother had passed away. And just when they were sitting down having their coffee, he put his hand out, put his hand in Finton's hand. And he said, have you allowed yourself time to grieve? 
mm. you know, that he was, uh, by all accounts, a very kind man. And that this gruff exterior, like there's a few stories here by Joe. And, 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 and I think Joe means very well in this piece that he, he loved the guy. Yeah, and he just said he had a huge heart. Yeah, 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 huge heart. But like, the, you know, the, the kind of stories that play up the brusqueness. But uh, like I remember after the 1998 All-Ireland semi-final Derry Galway when Mullins was managing Derry. It was before there was a media room in Croke Park and they used to wait outside the dressing for the managers. And I remember Brian walked past and he just went, uh, best team won, no complaints. And he turned <laughs> and he jabbed his finger into the chest of one journalist and you can't quote me on that. And then he walked away. <laughs> there were those quotes. But that was a performance, you know. That yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was great. <laughs> like, that was better than an hour of quotes of oh, somebody yeah. else. You get, get a column out of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow, that's amazing. The Finn and Drury story is amazing. Yeah. G- give me that over small talk any day. <laughs> uh, Kieran Cunningham, thank you very much. Sarah Donovan, thank you very much. We are right out of time and back next week. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. <laughs>